Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. I'm so busy with my daily podcast that I don't listen to many other podcasts, not because they're competition, because I just don't have the time. But the one podcast that I always try to listen to is David Runciman's Talking Politics. He's a professor, his day job is a professor of politics at Cambridge University, but his Talking Politics podcast is really essential, not only for British politics, but for US and, and global politics. Uh, Runciman's background is as a political theorist, and as a kind of subset of his Talking Politics podcast, he came out with a series earlier, earlier this year called The History of Ideas, which he went through the great thinkers in, in the Western tradition to make sense of uh, the current complexity and uncertainty of, uh, of politics in 2020. Uh, David, you begin with Thomas Hobbes, and uh, I don't want to sound too Freud in here. Freud was, was not one of the thinkers in your history of ideas, but you are somewhat obsessed with Hobbes. Is that fair? Yeah, I think it's come on to me quite late in the, um, so I'm, I'm in Cambridge University where Hobbes is a big deal. You, a lot of people are interested in him. It's a thing that goes back probably a generation. So I was a bit skeptical. Um, and I read Leviathan as a student. It's a very strange book. But it's one of those books that if it catches you in the right mood, it seems to have all the secrets in it. It's slightly mysterious. It's almost a bit mystical. I mean, I say in the podcast, it's both the most rational book ever written about politics and it's completely mad. Um, and, it's, and those two things are not necessarily incompatible because... No. As, well, we, as know, we, know, we know rational people who are pretty mad, I think. Right, and politics and rationality and madness are bound up, as you know, Foucault reminds us also. So uh, th there is something very contemporary about uh, about uh, Hobbes isn't there yeah I mean it's uh you know, it's a strange book because the, the the bulk of it is about the bible um and it's an attempt to kind of reconcile this uh weird view of politics with 17th century religious preconceptions and I just strip all that out as many people who read it now do they don't even read that bit and if you read the bit that seems the heart of it it feels very contemporary it's someone trying to find a language to talk about power authority without falling back on God or tradition or history, just, you know, the, the goal was to come up with an argument about politics that ought to make sense to anyone, particularly anyone who found themselves in a situation where they felt afraid, afraid of politics, and set out what really the stakes are. You know, you're always going to feel a bit afraid. That's the world we live in. Is there a way that we could rationalize and package up that fear? so that we can live with it. And that's a very, you know, that's a very 2020 thought, never mind a contemporary thought. You know, it's a, and, and part of the reason I did this series is because I was in lockdown, all my students were in lockdown, there was no teaching going on. Um, it's an interesting time to think about politics because to be locked in your house for your own safety 
is a pretty unusual and <clears throat> you know, unnerving state of affairs. And Hobbes speaks to that too. It's about politics being simultaneously protection and coercion. And Hobbes, of course, is very honest about that. He's very honest about his own fear in the midst of the, the English Civil War and mm. his fear about uh, not only the future of his country, but his own life. Uh, what seems and what, and what you, I thought, brought out brilliantly in, in, your, Hobbes, uh, in your Hobbes episode and, and throughout the series was that your focus on Hobbes's attempt to build or rebuild authority in, in a post-medieval, post, um, a, 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 a post sort of metaphysical age, to build authority around rationality, political authority, when political authority was in such crisis during the English Civil War and during a time where people were discovering that the essential truths that had that undermined or underpinned society for hundreds of years had suddenly disappeared. Yeah, and he was trying to get away from what he thought was the, the thing that always led to political ruin, which is that your view of political authority had to be anchored in something outside politics. And that he thought led to civil war. So if you anchor it in your religion, it's not going to fit someone else's religion, your God, someone else's God, your king, someone else's parliament, your emperor, your pope. He wanted a version of politics where it was anchored inside the politics itself. It was this kind of almost self-generating conception of authority. So it wasn't just that it was it was secular. I mean, it wasn't secular in that he then tried to make it compatible with religion, but deep down it is secular, but also that it was self-standing. I mean, that's the idea of it. And, and therefore it's accessible to anyone. So you can come to it. You know, it, it is that very modern idea. You can come to it as your political space regardless of what you happen already to believe. And it was at a time where he thought that, you know, that, as I call it in the, in the talk, that pre-modern conception where politics has to be a choice between fundamentals, fundamental values or beliefs, that all politics, even if, if it's a choice between democracy and monarchy or aristocracy and monarchy, or more likely Protestant, Catholic, you know, my tribe, your tribe, politics before Hobbes really was assumed at its root to be a choice about who you are and what you believe. And Hobbes wanted to say, it's not. You can have a politics where you actually park those choices. Politics becomes a space of order. And then you can do all of that really important value stuff outside of politics. So it's this weird thing about Hobbes that he's remembered as this sort of authoritarian political thinker. It's all about power and authority but he creates the foundations of the modern liberal state. Because the idea is if you get your authority in a place where you can understand it, it frees you up to do all of the contentious stuff outside of politics. And that is safer. It's safer if you can do your religion outside of politics. And that is a liberal idea. So that's the other weird thing about Hobbes, the great philosopher of authoritarian power is the founder of the modern liberal state. And, uh, the modern liberal state is one that's increasingly being brought into question today uh, mm. for its objectivity. It, 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 sort of one of the, the core elements, it seems to me, in Hobbes's Leviathan is the idea of the state as a referee. Is that fair? As something that exists beyond us so that we all have to acknowledge its authority 
and that it, it can't be biased. And by definition, if it is, it won't work. Yeah, but it's, it's the really uncomfortable version of that because Hobbes is pretty clear that once you agree that essentially a sovereign authority, let's call it a government, is going to have to take decisions for you because we're not going to agree among ourselves, particularly war and peace, but also, you know, he's straightforward. He says things like taxation. You're not going to get consensus on taxation. Someone's going to have to decide. Ideally, that decision would be neutral and it would be reasonable, but it might not be. And even when it's not, you're going to have to live with it because if you start arguing with it, then you're back at square one. And so it, it, there is an idea and an ideal there of the unbiased neutral arbiter, that the sovereign, the, the government sets the terms by which we live and doesn't take sides. But the uncomfortable bit about the Hobbes version, the reason actually deep down he is himself not a liberal in that modern, you know, not North American contemporary sense, but in the sort of European sense, uh, he's not a defender of personal freedom, is that there's always the risk that this will be arbitrary and actually, when I was doing this, doing it in the context of 2020 and you know, being locked down in our own homes, I think it is important to recognize, even though we, we were a million miles away from Hobbes in many respects with our politics, he says there will always be a strain of arbitrariness in government. You cannot eradicate it. You might want it to be rational, neutral, fair, but it will just be a decision. You know, he's in a more contemporary terms he's what's sometimes called a decisionist what's important is someone has to decide and there is you know we're living in a at a time in a pandemic where we want governments to take decisions for us that are sensible rational neutral but the arbitrariness of those decisions is so stark every day i mean you know i'm sitting here in the uk the government has just decided on a whim from last night to tonight to change the rules again about who's allowed to visit whose houses and they're doing it with the best of intentions in a spirit of fairness and neutrality. And it's completely bloody arbitrary. Arbitrariness, of course, is another, maybe another word, a dirty word for politics or, or, or a politician. Uh, fast forwarding <laughs> yeah. from Hobbes to one of your more modern subjects in, in the history of ideas. And it, it, there are 12 people in the, in, in the series. Everyone should, should listen to the whole series. I, I can't go through all 12. Uh, I want to fast forward to Max Weber, whom, who many people associate as being the father of sociology, but less, less uh, someone influential in, in, in terms of the history of political theory. Um, you, you, uh, your your uh, your show on 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 Weber focuses on um, a speech Weber made. I think it was in 1919 in Munich after the mm. the First World War at a time in Germany, not entirely dissimilar from the summer of 2020, Black Lives Matter and so much other chaos, where political authority was breaking down, where no one believed in anything, where the if you like the Hobbesian state was in crisis. Uh, what's so interesting about Weber? Why is he important in the history of political ideas? So it's true, I do focus on this one lecture and, and it, actually each talk is about one piece of writing. So I tried to make it just about a single text um, and not all of them are books. This one was, a, you know, he literally gave it as a lecture to a group of students in Munich in January 1919. So we're, we're two months after the end of the First World War and Munich, Bavaria, 
in January 1919 was in the middle of a Bolshevik revolution. So people you know, often forget, like the First World War just gets folded into the story of the Weimar Republic and then you get Hitler. Between the First World War and the birth of the Weimar Republic, Germany was in chaos. It wasn't a civil war as such, but in the South, effectively, you know, Bolshevik sympathizers were in charge trying to create a Soviet Republic. And that's where Weber gave this talk to students, many of whom were sympathizers with the revolution. And this was both a bit like 2020 and nothing like 2020 because the violence was on a completely different scale. And we're talking about a nation that is suffering collectively and separately from you know, profound post-traumatic stress disorder. They've just been through the First World War. And as I say, the other thing that we tend to forget is that so two months earlier, Germany had lost that war. Six months before that, Germany thought it was about to win that war. I mean, 1918 was this roller coaster. They were, they were at the gates of Paris, and then it fell apart. So this is a country traumatized, full of soldiers back from the war, many of them with guns, breaking apart, no government, no government at all at this point. Kaiser has abdicated. There's not the Weimar Republic yet. And right in the middle of this, Weber gives the greatest ever account of what in a modern state, this state that simultaneously does coercion and violence and is designed to create peace and security, what it means to be a political leader and what it means to take political responsibility. And I think I described it in my thing, it's like the great secular sermon. It is a sermon and it's got this extraordinary resonance because you can sense he's saying to these students who are, who are flirting with Soviet-style violence to take them to the utopian promised land of communist peace. Uh, you be careful what you wish for. You know, you're playing with fire. Like, and he's saying it to the politicians in Berlin. I mean, he's saying it to you know everyone in Germany at this point who's engaged in politics has, is facing these almost existential decisions about how much violence you can tolerate to get to the thing you think you want. And Weber says, I mean, the, the key lesson of it is never think that where you want to get to, the, the goal, the promised land, wipes the slate clean. The violence is always, the means to get there are always with you, and you will have to live with that. But it isn't Weber also in that speech, and this is why it's so relevant today, talking about what he described as politics as a vocation. Yeah. And arguing that, that we need to, and, and, and there's something very strongly Hobbesian about this, that we need to separate politics from morality, that we need to come down from the Sermon on the Mount, and that, that, that politics is, needs to be professionalized if it's going to work, particularly in 1919 or perhaps in 2020. Yeah. I mean, so he does, and it's got, it, it really is, a, I mean, never mind that people should listen to my lecture they should read his um it's an amazing piece of writing and it it does it, <clears throat> excuse me it does say that it absolutely says that you know, by the 20th century this is now a profession and not many people can do it and it requires certain skills and aptitudes and so on but he says that to be the true political leader you have to combine this professional side of politics you have to be sober-minded where possible, you have to be rational, you have to think about consequences and unintended consequences. You have to operate with a party machine, all of that. It's mechanical. Um, it's sometimes quite bureaucratic. You also have to have a vision. And a lot of people read that talk as him warning, you know, the students with their grand vision of a socialist utopia. He's kind of really asking them to be very wary of visionary politics. 
But the other side of it is that he says, you also have to be really worried about the straight professionals who are so cynical, who are so just in the game for the sake of the game, often for money or for power, for influence, that they've lost sight of the fact that you really do have to believe in something to make this work. And so he says, to be a true politician, you have to combine what he calls the ethics of conviction and the ethics of responsibility, which means you have to be a professional and a visionary. And he says, the vast majority of human beings are not up to it. It's incredibly hard to do those two things at the same time. And at a time where the idea of a professional politician is an anathema, maybe in the West, that the speech is particularly relevant. I think it's also relevant in the sense that Weber's famous for his Trinitarian definition of authority, of rational, legal, yeah. uh, charismatic, and traditional. And of course, speaking in 1919, he died quite soon after that. Uh, but his charismatic model uh, blew up to the most catastrophic extent possible in Germany uh, in, in, in the 1930s. Uh, how relevant do you think that is, and, and particularly in a, in a Hobbesian model? Are we still um, dependent do you think ultimately you're, you're in the UK with Boris Johnson, I'm in, England, uh, in the United States with Donald Trump, both kind of charismatic politicians, or at least politicians who base their authority on a kind of charisma. How relevant do you think is the idea of charisma when it comes to building political authority in the early part of the 21st century? So I think there is a lesson, it's from Hobbes and Weber, and there is a connection there, which is, you know, they, I think they both in their different ways thought that to lead one of these states, one of these big, powerful states with you know, extraordinary capacity to do good and harm, that, that role is gonna require charisma in the sense it's gonna require political leaders with whom people can identify. This kind of representation, not democratic representation, but people have to, have to be able to see themselves and see the state in their leaders. You know, the Leviathan is embodied by its head, its sovereign, and Weber, believe that leadership was a personal thing. And yet in a modern state, it's got to be combined with the rational legal. It's got to be consistent with a structure which is broadly mechanical and bureaucratic. And in a well-functioning state, these two things will complement each other. And that is possible. And I think in the history of modern states, there have been, it's rare, but there have been times where they go together. You know, charismatic leadership strengthens the authority of the, the bureaucratic state. And now we're living in a time where they're, they're coming apart. I'm particularly, I'd say, in the United States. Um, you know, the administrative state now has as its enemy number one, the president of the United States. Um, that's not quite true in Britain, but we're not far off it. Um, you know, Dominic Cummings wants to, right. who doesn't have a lot of charisma, it has to be said, uh, wants to take the whole thing down. Um, so, and again, I think the Weberian lesson would be that when it goes well, those types of authority, you can see all of them. You know, this state both has tradition and it has a legal rational basis and it has a figurehead in whom people can believe. And when it goes wrong, it's because they come apart. And in 2020, I would say they're coming apart. Absolutely. And we should all bear Weber in mind in terms of uh, our longing for, if you like, the amateurization of politics and our contempt for professionals. Now, some people, David, will be watching this and think, 
two reasonably men, maybe me, old and middle-aged white guys talking about political theory, talking about other male political theorists, Thomas Hobbes, the ultimate male theorist in many ways, and Max Faber. Uh, but your series actually is, is, is not all male. There are a number of women in it. And I, and I thought my favorite, actually, show was on Hannah Arendt, the 20th century uh, German-American political theorist, who I think, um, particularly in the context of Faber and Hobbes, is much more idealistic. And I thought there was something particularly um, contemporary about your analysis of Arendt uh, in the context of labor and the digital revolution that we're all living through. Why did you choose Arendt and why do you think she's so important today, particularly in the context of everything we've been talking about so far, which is the rebuilding of authority and uh, particularly the building of meaning in, in uh, mm. polit uh, the, the meaning of politics in an age where we, are, where we don't know where to find it. So yeah, I came to Arendt pretty late and actually it was a student who was writing a, a PhD thesis about, um, it was about existential risk and Heidegger, I think. Anyway, and he, um, he said to me, I think you, sh you should read The Human Condition by Hannah Arendt because he just read it or reread it and said it's, you know, in the context of the digital age, it's a remarkably prescient book. And I, um, I went in there with low expectations, which is good because she's very fashionable. And it blew me away and it really did resonate. So it's from 1958. Um, in her mind, technology means you know, the, the, the early space race. I mean, the, you know, the digital revolution is not even a, you know, it's not even anywhere on the horizon at this point. And yet, you know, to put it very briefly, she breaks the human condition down into these three forms of activity, labor, work, and action. And labor is, is basically the, the, you know, what we do to keep ourselves alive. It is actually quite Hobbesian. It's, it's consumption. It's, it's, you know, it's what the human condition has been for most people for most of human history, which is just a relentless struggle to get enough food in so that you can keep moving. Um, work is is building stuff, so the creation of artifacts, as she puts it, and action is basically politics. It's creative interaction between human beings. And her fear in 1958 was that action was collapsing back into the kind of artificial, and the artificial was falling back into the, the natural world of labor, so that our politics had become too artificial, it was too mechanical, it was like constructing systems and machines and bureaucracies that would sort of churn out the right result. And at the same time, she, you know, she really valued sort of artifice, she thought human beings were great at building stuff. But this fear that we were moving into an age of kind of consumerism and consumption, that we would just be building things relentlessly to be consumed, not food, not energy, but just sort of everything that we built would be there because we had these insatiable appetites for those things. So that, that second fear seems to me incredibly contemporary, you know, in the age of Amazon or whatever, that the artificial world, which is one of the glories of the human condition, you know, it's meant to be building symphonies and uh, cathedrals and really nice pieces of furniture and great food and, um, and even, you know, houses and the relationships that happen in those houses has become hard to distinguish from just trying to feed a hunger um and that you know the consumer age the consumerist age can take over and that really resonated with me 
the bit I was more skeptical about was her idea that somehow politics has itself become mechanical because I thought, and I say in my talk, I think there's a way of thinking that it doesn't go that way around. It's not like politics is where we take human action and we turn it into a machine. Politics is where we take a machine, the modern state, and we humanize it. We actually, through human action, through politics and politicians, we give it life and we give it character. And that uh, I think she was wrong then, and it would be wrong now to give up on that, to think we have to go back to some kind of Athenian model where we strip away all of the trappings of modernity and get back to sort of face-to-face -face human action where we communicate in the public square or whatever. You know, we live in worlds of modern states, that's where we are, and we should continue the, the attempt to humanize them. So it, it was a book that spoke to me on both levels, and it's a complete masterpiece. I mean, it's one of those rare books you read it and you think, oh my God, she really saw stuff. And not only did she see stuff, uh, I mean, she literally saw stuff, of course. She reported on the, the Eichmann she trial in Jerusalem. Yeah. She was a refugee from Nazi Germany. Um, but she also, and, and this is sort of wrapping this thing up from, from Hobbes, uh, David, she, she got beyond politics as fear, didn't mm. she? Or she tries to get beyond, as you say, the mechanical politics of fear, of human need in this trinity of, of, of organizations that she comes up with, it's a hierarchy. And, 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 and for her, politics is perhaps a return to the Greeks in some ways. Politics represents us at our most human, and it's not as, as base as Hobbes. It's not just about protecting our lives. It, yeah, no, she, she, and she's explicitly critical of Hobbes. So she says that, you know, the person who started this mechanization of politics was Thomas Hobbes, who built the state, and he says in the first line of Leviathan, it's an automaton, it's a robot. He turned politics into this kind of species of robotics, and of course that's a fear that resonates with many people now. And for her, politics is, is yeah, in the hierarchy of human creativity, um, feeding yourself is at the bottom, building a nice chair is somewhere in the middle, and creating a system of laws by which human beings can live creative and peaceful lives is at the top. And it's a form of creativity, she thinks, that it relies on language. So it's, it's really purely human. Machines cannot do it. I mean, what she would think now, but I suspect she'd still be deeply skeptical of machine learning, because machines really still struggle with creative language. I know there's some new bot they've just created that apparently can write you know, good impersonations of business journalism. But political language, which is where human beings connect with each other, in a creative way she thinks only humans can do that and it, this is 58 but she's already worrying about the coming of the robots and also and it, not only the coming of the robots but coming of technocracies like in singapore you know she was of course uh, the great critic of totalitarianism and it goes without saying that you can read a rent to make sense of nazi germany or soviet russia but the human condition is is really a critique of of places like singapore which are successful or seem to be successful without politics, without democracy. Yeah, and it's also, it's a critique of the, the America she was living in, the America of the military industrial complex. You know, this is also, this is the nuclear age. I mean, you know, 1958, this is, if politics is gonna go wrong in the worst way it can go wrong, it's because the machines that will win are not the robots, the machines that will win are the weapons of mass destruction. And I think she's assuming that human action would not lead to the obliteration of the human race unless human action gets snared up in the machinery of politics. So this is a real anxiety about nuclear weapons too. 
Um, but yeah, she's, she, she thinks there's a trend in modern life and modern politics, which is to take what can be wonderfully creative, which is you know, artificial life, building things that aren't natural, and thinking that politics is just an extension of that and that you lose the creativity. And she, you know, she has beautiful lines in it. So she says, one of the things she says about politics is it's basically a kind of storytelling. And the thing about stories is that they are the only things that last forever. I mean, a story, you know, a good story is literally eternal, so long as there are human beings to hear it. And it's also gone the minute you've told it. A story is both the most evanescent thing there is and the only truly eternal thing that human beings create. And that, as a vision of politics, is almost, you know, it's almost religious. It's kind of transcendent. And her fear was mechanical modern politics didn't have the stories. Yeah, the, the stories are our cathedrals and uh, they're, they're put into books as well. I'm assuming, David, at the end of these conversations, I always ask my guests for the suggestion of a reading. I'm assuming you're saying everyone should read Arendt's Human Condition. I know you're turning uh, th th this History of Ideas podcast series into a book, which I'm really excited about. Anything else people should read in these weird times alongside uh, Arendt and, of course, Hobbes's Leviathan and, and, and Weber's famous speech about her politics as a vocation? So I, I read a lot of books for the, pod, the main podcast I do, Talking Politics. Um, a good one that I read recently, and we did a podcast about it, um, Anne Applebaum's book called The Twilight of Democracy, which is about, it's about America, and it's about Britain, but it's really interesting about Poland, where she lives, and about um, the ways in which politics can go wrong among friends. So it's a book about the break, I think the subtitle in the English, the British version is The Breaking of Friendship about how groups of people who can think that they're on the same side, as many people in Poland did at the turn of the millennium, can find that they're near mortal enemies 20 years later, and no one quite knows how they got there. And that is a really, um, a really haunting book. Anne Applebaum uh, is going to be on my show uh, for a live... Well, there you go. There's a, there's a nice segue for yeah. you. <laughs> live conversation with, with Anne Applebaum and Michael Ignatiev sometime in August. So, David, uh, that was wonderful, and we are looking forward to the next series. Great. Thanks very much. Good to talk. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.